Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Narragansett, Rhode Island, and I am thrilled to welcome today's guest, Jasmine Ferrier, who's the Vice President for Advancement at the University of Louisville. Welcome, Jasmine. Thank you very much, Brent, and it's absolutely a pleasure and honor to be with you today. Well, we have interviewed almost 100 advancement leaders at this point, and you are one of the only individuals in an advancement leadership role who started as a professor and has really been a professor for most of your career. And so I'm really excited to learn about that journey and what your impression has been since moving to the dark side, the light side. I don't know what side it is, but since moving to advancement. Um, but before we get there, I we have really enjoyed just hearing about the academic journey of our, uh, of our guests. And I wanted to start by saying, uh, if you would be willing to take us back to, let's say, junior year of high school at Brooklyn Technical. Uh, tell us who that Jasmine was, what she was into, and what led you to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, of all places. Probably not the number one destination for your fellow Brooklynites. Well, if I can be truthful, the path from me from Brooklyn to Wisconsin was $10 and no essay. And that was pretty much the standard for an out-of-state application to the University of Wisconsin at that time. One had to be in the top half of one's class and I was in the top half of my class. So it's a much more competitive environment for schools like that from out-of-state. I really didn't know what I wanted to study. I didn't know what I wanted to do with a college degree. I just knew I was supposed to go to college. And I'm being honest with you. So Brooklyn Tech is an unusual school for my interests and my background and skill set because it's an engineering high school. It was not a good fit for me. I did not become an engineer. And it's one of the three specialized schools that are operated by the public school system in New York City. And you get in and you go. So you go to the best school you get into. So there's Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, and Brooklyn Tech. So I was very grateful to have gotten in to Brooklyn Tech. It was walking distance from my apartment. And until I got there, I didn't realize that it was an engineering school. And it was not a great fit for me, honestly. So I was not a stellar student. I did not understand um, the point of the curriculum. And I enjoyed high school quite a bit in the 80s. And I enjoyed living in New York and growing up there, but I wanted a change. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, not knowing anything about the school. I accepted, you, I never I never visited. Never been. Had you been no, to the no. Midwest period? Never, never. Until I got in, until it was time for me to sign up for housing. So it was a different time then. I don't recall any of my friends going on college tours or visits. It was just not something that was done in my circle in the 80s. So I knew it was a big school. I did apply to some small liberal arts schools and my mother gave me very blunt, but very insightful advice, which was you've been a number your whole life going to large public schools and you'll be okay as a number in a big school. And maybe that's the pl best place for you to have the type of intellectual diversity and academic opportunities to find myself. And that's exactly what happened. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, not knowing what I was going to study. I toyed with being an English major. I wasn't terrific at that. I became a political science major. 
And walk, I've just always- Just walk me through. So I grew up not too far from Madison, actually, just in Northeast Iowa, right across oh, really? the Mississippi River. So sometimes when I go home, we'll actually fly to Madison. And so I know it well. Um, first of all, like first week of school, you know, who had the better accent, the Wisconsin uh, natives or, or you? Uh, and then, and then <sighs> second, what kind of culture shock did you experience? Well, it, it's real. That, that's yes and no. So I'll tell you this. Um, my accent was much more Brooklyn in those days. Keep in mind that this was a long time ago. So I, I did live in Madison for four years. I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which I'm happy to talk about. And then I lived here in Louisville for 20 years. So remember, I left Brooklyn in 1988. So I only have an accent when I'm back in Brooklyn. That's pretty much the family lore right now. As the second we touch down in LaGuardia, my family wonders, who is this person speaking? Amazing. Yeah, but they did have, uh, they had a strong accent. Giesman is how I was called. Giesman, love Giesman. it. Well, the strange thing is, and I, I say this with some regret at the time, but I know that it's different now. Wisconsin actually was pretty segregated between in-state and out-of-state students. And that was by law at the time at the University of Wisconsin, Every state student from Wisconsin that wanted a dorm space could get one, and no out-of-state students had that guarantee. They actually had a separate housing application process, and I didn't know any of that. I was not a sophisticated applicant at all. I had very little help doing this, and I didn't get into housing, which was unsurprising because no or few out-of-state students lived in the dorms. So instead, a bunch of private dorms sprung up around campus, and that's where all the out-of-state students were clustered. So here's the sad truth. After four years of Wisconsin, I had two very close friends from Wisconsin, and everybody else was from Chicago, Minneapolis, and the Northeast Amtrak corridor spanning Boston to DC. And I met a lot of people from Brooklyn who are still my closest friends who literally lived a couple of neighborhoods away. I didn't know them in high school. Wow. But when I go home to Brooklyn, I visit my college friends. So it's actually much better now. And my daughter is a junior at Wisconsin right now. And so she is an out-of-state student being from Louisville. She was immediately brought into the regular dorm community. That's where out-of-state students live. It's a completely different experience. And I'm grateful for that change. So you find your way there. Uh, you find your, your, your group of fellow out-of-state students. You study political science, uh, you know, technical high school, maybe think in English, sort of polar opposite, land on political science, um, and clearly must have had a, a positive enough experience to decide, hey, I actually like this, uh, you know, this education thing, and, and I want to do a whole lot more of it. So, so tell yes. me about what, what sparked that sort of connection or inspiration um, along your academic journey there. It's very simple. I had an extraordinary and legendary professor named Booth Fowler, who's still with us. He's retired now. He taught political theory classes and political theory borders on philosophy, but it's through a very different lens. And political theory asks the biggest questions about humans, our, the human condition, the ability of us to group together in a social contract the ability of humans to gov govern other humans as flawed as we are. And it's an ancient way of looking at the capacity of communities to grow. And government is a, is a crucial component of economic and social mobility. And I studied ancient philosophy about community 
and about, again, reason, human conditions, social contract, and the Enlightenment, all the way through the Federalist Papers and, and other topics. And this professor was a professor that's life-changing for a lot of people. I've met other professors as a political scientist who were also inspired by him, and I'll tell you what it was, Brent. It's exactly what's supposed to happen in college, and that's why I decided to live my entire career inside a college campus. These classes were large. He spent time not only teaching compelling material in a very engaging way, he spent every class getting to know by name every single person in the room, even if it was over 100 people. He had office hours where people lined up in the hall. He took time with every person. I took 18 credits with him. I did a senior thesis on Plato and Rousseau. I told him I wanted to be a professor, although I didn't know what that meant and what it entailed. He discouraged me, as many people do. If I told a dentist I wanted to be a dentist, you'd probably say, well, you know, you don't really know what you're getting into. And I'm sure medical students and law students and lots of different professional advice goes that way. In my case, he said that he would support my application to graduate school, but he steered me in a different direction. And that's why I went to the University of Texas at Austin. He thought that I would be better suited to other fields. I ended up going to Texas. I became an American institutionalist, so I didn't study political theory as much, although that's one of my fields, and I studied public law. And the truth is I belonged, I mattered, I was a, a, an intellectual uh, in training, and I was curious and a sponge. And he was the right person to meet me in all those places, but it wasn't just for me, it was for literally hundreds of students over his career. And here's the part that I didn't understand until I became a political scientist, that there's a research component to working in an R1 university, especially a top 10 university like the University of Wisconsin. He never shied away from spending all this time with students while still being a researcher. And that was extraordinary and I didn't appreciate that. So I'll stop there, but I'll tell you this. When I was a junior, I had a lightning bolt go through me in his class and I said, I wanna be this. I don't know how I'm going to be this, but I will. And that's exactly I what happened. That. I love that story. And, you know, when you read all of the headlines that continue to emerge around higher education and the pressures of student debt and the cost of tuition and all the negative headlines, we just need to tell that story better as a sector because everybody that is passionate and, and has experienced the social mobility or the transformational experience that for you was Booth Fowler. For me, it was getting the opportunity to play football at Brown as a first-generation college student. We just, we're not telling those stories nearly as well as, um, as, as the, the sort of competition is, is sort of telling the other side. And obviously, Wisconsin as a state has been very much in the center of that discussion. And it's just, you know, how do we get better at, at doing what you just did, what you just said? That's right. And so I, I do draw on this experience when I'm in the classroom. So I was a Pell student. I was a work-study student. I got full support, but it wasn't merit-based. As I said, I wasn't a stellar high school standout prospect for the University of Wisconsin. So I went through college on need-based aid and I'm extremely grateful for that. When I meet my students in the classroom, I have no preconceptions about their abilities, their interests, their home life, their economic potential. They just look like college students to me. And I appreciated that, that there were no preconceptions about any limits on what I could do or achieve. 
And I tell the students that I'm there for them. Now, I also have a reputation for being somewhat demanding, and I don't think that the two are incompatible. I am demanding because I think they can meet my demands. And I am, however, flexible on the life part. And this is especially true from the last year. To be honest, Brent, before COVID, I was pretty much a stickler about deadlines. I think that I've given up a lot of that uh, scheduling for the sake of being on time, for the sake of fairness to other students. Students are very compassionate with each other. They understand if one person gets an extension, the universe has that kind of karma. And one day they will also need some kind of special dispensation. So I just want students to succeed right now. I might go back to my more disciplinary approach. But when I got this position, I didn't give up teaching. I teach one class a semester. I was department chair before I was a VP and I taught three classes a year, which may have been a bit much, but I can certainly manage one class a semester. Who, uh, well, I have, I have a couple of questions. One, tell me about the first, like the first time you were a professor, you know, when you got that first class and my understanding is you went from UT Austin to right to Louisville, you know, how, how did you, how does that process work? I'm sure a lot of folks don't really understand. How do you go from getting your PhD to, to placing somewhere? And, um, and then, you know, what, what, because look, when you're a student, you assume the professors just know everything, right? But what was it like that, you know, first semester, I mean, humbling, exciting, terrifying. I mean, all of the above, if, if, if you recall. Well, luckily I had a lot of training, but not in a formal sense. So when students get PhDs, a top school fully funds every single student. So when I went to the University of Texas to get my PhD in government, that's what their political science department is called, I received a teaching assistantship. At other universities, graduate students are recruited with research assistantships. But Texas is such a big school, even bigger than Wisconsin, they need an army of teaching assistants because professors, and I had this experience at Wisconsin, so I knew what I was doing, or at least I knew what it meant to be a student. So in these large classes, including Booth Fowler's classes, there was a bank of teaching assistants that did recitations or discussion sections every Friday or once a week, who graded all the exams and papers Professors only at the highest levels of senior seminars and graduate school would ever grade their own papers. So I knew what it meant to have a teaching assistant. So I knew exactly what it meant to learn to become one. And that was something I was thrown into my first semester. So I had a great experience being a teaching assistant because I was moving into a new field. I took my first law classes ever as a teaching assistant. I had to stay a couple of chapters ahead of the students. That was terrifying, Brent, if you must know. But I got to experience the undergraduate world through the eyes of the professor and as somebody in between to facilitate these conversations. So the good news was I TA'd for a lot of different classes. I got to learn all that material again, and I got to help students feel that belonging, that care, the encouragement, and yes, the demanding standards that a professor couldn't give at that gigantic classroom level. I developed close relationships with my students. I developed a history of teaching evaluations that were crucial when I hit the job market. And I did that for several years. Then at UT Austin, because again, the needs of the department were vast, I got to teach my own classes and have my own teaching assistants before I even had my PhD. So when I was in the last stages of my dissertation research, I taught Introduction to American Government 
with TAs plural of my own. That was actually harder than teaching students was training the TAs and being a manager for the first time. And then um, I also taught community college to make ends meet. I taught a lot of different community college classes around in the Austin community college system. A lot of people moon, were moonlighting that way too. And then I taught mid-level classes. So when I went on the job market, PhD programs um, obviously are very competitive, but the market is even more competitive. I didn't have a strong research record, but I did have a strong teaching record. So I'm extremely grateful that the University of Louisville was one of two places where I received a job offer. And I chose Louisville because I visited several times. My husband was coincidentally from Louisville, even though he wasn't living there at the time. When I interviewed, I told them they do not have to sell me on this city, on this state. Um, I want to live here. I have family here through my husband and I was going to put my root down. And I did exactly those things. I was so grateful for this position. This actually is very important for my story. I was grateful to get this position. And I knew that I was gonna show my gratitude every day of my long career. And I've been here for 20 years. I've never looked at a job ad and I've never said no to any opportunity to help U of L. That kind of gratitude gets noticed, not on purpose. It's just my nature, it's who I am. When Neely Bendapudi, our 18th president arrived in May of 2018, before the pandemic, before she saved the hospital system by acquiring U of L Health for the university, before the challenges of the Louisville community, before the challenges of racial reckoning, we had a new president who liked getting things done. She found out that I was one of the types of people who gets things done. And I was the department chair by then in political science. She asked me to do some special projects. I did them. They were hard, I never complained. And I'm happy to talk about what those were. I was grateful to be part of her early success. When she gave me an opportunity to apply for this position in the summer of 2020, I was stunned. And for all the reasons that you would expect, I've met a lot of people who are my equivalents and nobody has my story, but I'm not sure if that's a good thing to be honest, Brent. I think a lot of people should. I think that I could learn fundraising in a year, not perfectly. And that's why I have a, a strong team to help me but I'm not sure that people could understand the University of Louisville in a year. And I have 20 years of experience with the most extraordinary students. We have 40% Pell eligible students. We also have the most Fulbrights, critical language scholarships, born scholarships, really high level, Ivy level, Brown level opportunities after graduate school. We have more interns in our state capital than our other Kentucky schools combined. Same for Fulbrights. We are at Duke Stanford levels of Fulbrights every year. We have this extraordinary student body. Again, it's not an either or. You're not Pell eligible or you're an elite student. You're both. We are also an R1 school. That's very unusual for the number of Pell students that we serve. We want to be an all of the above university. We want to be an elite student's degree of choice. We want to have the experiential learning and resume building experiences that every student deserves. We certainly wanna have high level research for undergraduates. We wanna launch students. We don't just wanna recruit, we wanna retain and launch. And I can tell you a lot about my first really extraordinary opportunity to bring all this experience together in a $2.45 million philanthropic grant that I just helped our university secure through the biggest foundation in the state. 
I and would like comes, to hear about that. I, I yeah. would be thrilled to tell you, but I'm saying this all comes together. It sounds strange only at first. Why a professor? Well, if you find the right person who loves an institution, feels loyal and grateful every day, leading by example, I can learn the rest. Again, not perfectly, but I have people who correct me every day when I see the wrong acronym. And I'm open to that. I'm a teachable person. What are, what but, are some of the acronyms that, uh, you know, oh, are maybe Cybunts becoming... and right. Libunts and, you know. Right, right. Um, and of course, all the gift agreement lingo, I've had to learn that. Right. Um, last night, we had an extraordinary um, annual event that we skipped for COVID for our Legacy Society members. We call it our Khan Legacy Society, named after Hank and Rebecca Khan, who helped us found it. And... I have to learn the the legacy and bequest world as well. We have a very lean team here at UofL as well. So I have a small development leadership team that are extraordinary. And here's the best part, Brent. They've been to other schools. You know, I love hearing their experiences. We have a small and mighty alumni team. We have a small and mighty advancement services team. We are among the smallest shops for an R1 that you could ever find. And honestly, that's a UofL brand. We don't want it that way. We don't celebrate it, but it's true. We get a lot done on very little. So I have a couple of questions. One, what are one or two uh, either misunderstood or poorly understood political science facts or uh, themes that we all should just, we should just know, and we probably don't. So whether that's from your intro to American history or you call it dealer's choice. What are just one or two things we should all better understand? Okay. Conflict is inevitable, friend. And conflict actually can have very noble origins. I think that the world of higher education, among other industries, could benefit from the political science foundation that conflict is inevitable. And it, and it can also be very positive. I think that there's a a fear of conflict that comes into our lives, both personally and professionally, and it can hamper honesty and it can hamper empathy. And I'll explain why. Whether a political scientist studies American politics, world affairs, international relations, national security, and political theory, we know that in even the best possible world of freedom, liberty, and diversity, that people will disagree. Why? Because people look at the world through their own lens. That's not terrible, actually. The United States Congress may look dysfunctional, and maybe it is dysfunctional, but it represents a structural stab at regional diversity. Everybody who sits in Congress is a winner. They won a district or a state election. While that sounds like a recipe for fragmentation, it actually reflects the universe of those local and state perspectives. The members of the House and Senate and the president and the federal courts, they are all representing different types of people for different lengths of time, and they were put into their offices by different processes. That is done on purpose to facilitate conflict. And even though that sounds strange, it is part of the founding philosophy. It doesn't mean it works well, and it certainly can be a a very frustrating thing to be looking at the news every day when people don't get things done. But I go from this conflict perspective at work as well. I assume that well-meaning people with expertise and passion 
are going to look at the world through a different lens. I welcome that. I, should, why, we shouldn't all think the same, especially yeah. with, with scarce resources. Sometimes you have to be very direct about why a coveted dollar in a university or in any field should be sliced this way instead of that way. When you walk into a room knowing that there will be conflict, then you can ask the right questions to draw out the reasons that people are representing their, their values, but also representing their perspective on the university's goals, ambitions, and strategies. I think that's super well said. And uh, I mean, my big takeaway is um, r- recognizing the conflict is inevitable, then what, what can we really focus on? We can focus on empathy and understanding and getting to the root cause of, of why that conflict exists. And you know, for me, that's sort of been my whole journey, like growing up on a farm in Northeast Iowa, just wanting to go to college, going to Brown, you know, one of the most liberal colleges in the, in the country, which I didn't know what a liberal college, I had no idea what that meant, right? And, and, then, um, and then, you know, even as we've gone through such uh, politically polarizing times over the last couple of years, um, it, it is tough at times when uh, people just jump to vitriol, frustration, hatred, whatever it may be. And really it's like, it's nobody's fault that they think and feel the way that they feel. It's a function of their upbringing, their environment, you know, education, history. There's so many factors, which doesn't mean that we should give people a pass or, or accept every, uh, you know, belief. Um, But I do feel like uh, empathy is just so sorely lacking right now. How did you find the experience of Brown? How did you become you, Brent? Tell us your short story. Uh, well, I mean, my, my quick story is I, I showed up and I mean, I just, I just had literally no idea what I was getting into. I barely knew what Brown was before I applied. I was fortunate to sort of have my tribe out of the gates with the football team. And, and even there, you might sort of say, okay, that's, you know, that's one, you know, persona or, or group characterization, but that group was unbelievably diverse relative to what I'd grown up with from Pell eligible, you know, first gen financial aid recipients like me to ultra affluent and everything in between. And, um, and so I think, you know, for me, I probably went through an initial um, phase where um, I just had never been exposed to so many of the, the, the beliefs and passions that the student body had. And that was a little bit intimidating, overwhelming. I definitely just didn't feel even well, well versed enough to, um, have an opinion in some of the discussions that that were were common at that the, the lunch table, uh, for example, or in the classroom. But for me, by the time I got to my junior year, um, I don't know what it was, but I just sort of became fascinated with um, you know really getting to to know people from all walks of life, moving beyond the football team, which were you know and still are some of my best friends. But you know ha- having uh, my first gay friend, having my first friend from, uh, you know, XYZ background or ABC high school and just really getting to, you know, understand um, where people are coming from. Um, and and it, was, uh, it was an absolutely transformational, just amazing experience. And at the same time, I know that where I was coming from and the lens through which I see the world was not well understood by, you know, so many folks that might have 
you know, more of a, a coastal, you know, liberal mm-hmm. upbringing perspective, parents that, you know, push them in sort of one mindset their, their entire life. And so I, I do feel blessed to, to have, um, I feel like a strong sense of empathy as a result, even though my personal views have, you know, have evolved um, significantly as a result of the friendships, um, you know, that I built during that time and beyond. Well, I think that having that story is very useful for the type of diversity that one interacts with in fundraising. So I've talked to a more interesting, diverse group of people as a VP for advancement than I ever did as a professor or as a department chair. And I get to hear lots of different perspectives on what the university should or should not be doing. And I welcome those discussions, even if they're more one-sided in the sense that I'm not speaking at all. That's what's funny about being a professor because I do all the listening when I talk to donors, especially if I'm meeting, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. I I, uh, I went to I went to business school at Harvard where they really pride themselves on the Socratic method where it's mm-hmm. a little bit maybe more like the fundraiser you know listening and and sort of orchestrating but yeah I could see how that would be uh, the opposite of maybe the traditional uh, you know lecture or professor you know all wise uh, you know sharing with you versus you know being shared too. Well, it's how I approach my classroom leadership style as well, which is that I tell my students, you have 23 hours of the day to be a central character in every story. For one hour, can you just remove yourself and we do some analytical perspectives on whatever it is. I'm teaching the American presidency right now, which you'd think would be a food fight. I've taught through Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. I've taught through many difficult times. I've, I've taught all the, all the presidents that I've encountered myself as an adult and earlier, we go back to the beginning in my American presidency class. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with the student and it has to do with having, and I have a very specific analytical lens that I ask the students to buy into and it's not partisan, but it's an analytical lens and they can be as partisan as they want to be with the other 23 hours of the day. And so can I. But when I'm a fundraiser, I'm not a partisan either. I'm, I'm a partisan of UofL. I'm an institutional partisan. I'm not going to tell a donor that their values are not welcome at the University of Louisville. I'm going to tell them how the University of Louisville is, uh, is eager to hear how they, the donor, would like to invest in their values by giving opportunities to students, to faculty, to researchers, to community engaged opportunities. And I wanna hear what those values are and we're gonna meet them and match them and find the right opportunities and the right people and leaders and students to bring to them. And sometimes I disagree with what the person is saying, but that they wouldn't know that because it's not relevant. But I I can tell you that sometimes I I defend the institution. So, for example, I have uh, I I was working with a very generous donor who was worried that the more we talk about diversity as university, that we're changing our standards. And I said, I don't think that they're something different. We would never one does not mean the other. And so I'd ask, well, why do you think that? Why do you fear that? 
And then I would be able to bring more information to the table, but I would never say, no, you're wrong. I would say, I would like to get some more information to help you see that that may not be an either or. And that the workforce needs of the Commonwealth and the demographic reality of 18-year-olds in the United States and the budget model of the university, which has to be more welcoming, not just to people on their first day, but to actually complete their degrees and launch successfully, we're tracked on lots of different metrics from the state. And it's not just a noble imperative or a philosophy of diversity. This is the existential mission-driven central feature of our university today for lots of reasons. Sorry, you were going to say something? No, I was going to say some of what you described about, you know, never sort of rejecting the point of view, but trying to draw out why somebody feels the way that they feel um, is actually one of the go-to negotiating techniques. Like if you read a book on negotiation, right, people, you know, historically, it might have been about anchoring in my position, I'm going to anchor way out here and we'll land back here. And, and there's definitely been an evolution in, in the field of negotiation around empathy and, and, and trying to avoid that firm conflict. Um, and it sounds like maybe there's a similar approach in drawing out, um, you know, the voice of, of students. And, and for me, to be honest, it's, it's been a learning experience and I, I never hide my background. And I tell people I spent almost 20 years in one corner of a university. We have 13 schools and colleges and I spent my teaching career and then my administrative leadership time in the College of Arts and Sciences. Well, I've been involved in several tours of the School of Nursing since then. Um, the School of Medicine is, is very much, I was just right, making appointments for meeting with a donor for the School of Medicine, Brown Cancer Center. We have, of course, our engineering school. We have the College of Education and Human Development, libraries, music, dentistry, public health, college of business, college of law, and dean of students. I know all these deans. I respect them. There was a time when I even wanted to be a dean. I think that it's a very hard job. And I, and this came to, to being instead. I am curious also about my colleagues, their needs, their stresses, their challenges. What is the top student scholarship need? Why? How does it relate to the strategic priorities of our new budget model? What are your top research retention and faculty needs? What are your new programmatic needs, the infrastructure? Where does this fit into the university's mission for social mobility and diversity? I can have those conversations with deans because they understand my perspective. And I think unfortunately, and you tell me if you think this is true too, Brad, that there's something of a culture conflict with fundraising and the academic side of a university. I want my fundraising team to be taken seriously because they're partners with academic leadership. And I fear that academic leadership doesn't always take fundraisers seriously. And there may be a lot of reasons for that, but they're not acceptable to me because we're one university. And when I say we're here to help to a dean, I mean it. And we're not only here to help, but we're here to guide. We're here to guide, how do you get through a donor conversation? You don't do it as a chatty professor. The art of listening, of course, um, the art of strategic conversation about needs and opportunities, how to and when to talk about money. And this is all a teachable skill set. Tell me, I think. Uh, 
I'm with you on the sort of symbiotic relationship or it, the fact that it should be, but you were on the other side of the table and, and I, you know, maybe take me back to the Jasmine of 2010 or 2011 or 2012 and sort of when you were connected with fundraising or fundraising came up or advancement came up, what was your perspective at that time? I mean, were you always symbiotic or, or did no, you have to go through I, your own sort no. of evolution on that front? And then also, so what was your perspective then? And now being in the role that you're in, what are two or three themes that advancement should better communicate to faculty to support a more symbiotic relationship? Where is the misunderstanding? I didn't understand it and nobody helped me understand it, but I'll tell you how it all worked out beautifully. And then ironically, I'm working with the very people from a very different perspective that I should have worked with when I was political science chair. One of the reasons that I think I was tapped for this role was that I did have fundraising experiences that were in my mind created by the department leadership with an alumni council that was somewhat removed from the development part of the university and even our alumni team. And I, if I had done it differently, I would have leaned on those resources, but here's what happened. Um, I was convinced that we needed to have a political science alumni council that was, did not exist yet. I did reach out to alumni, people I now work with every day. They helped us create the council. I wanted to run all the strategy and I should have listened more but it still worked out very well because everybody is polite in development. They're gonna help meet anybody halfway. Even a halfway chair is better than a chair who doesn't know anything or care about fundraising. What I did with my very capable coordinator who is with me now in advancement is that, and I could not have been done without her. We created an alumni council fundraising idea that brought Democrats and Republicans together for a good cause. And we decided we wanted to have high profile events that celebrated our alumni successes. And in Kentucky, any given election, we have local state and even federal alums on the ticket from U of L political science. We want everybody to come together for a good cause. So what we decided to do was have fundraisers to celebrate their achievements. And of course there are lots of different public and private fields as well as nonprofits that come from political science. But we wanted to support internship scholarships because this is a very U of L student thing to do. A student gets a scholar, gets an internship opportunity in DC, is going to take three jobs to support him or herself. U of L students are filled with that kind of grit. They won't complain about it either. We have students at high percentages who work UPS third shift through a metropolitan college program where UPS pays their tuition. We're home to the World Port in Louisville. It's very common for professors to see exhausted students in eight o'clock classes. So we know that students work, but we know that scholarships also need to support living expenses, not just learning expenses. So Democrats and Republicans raised large sums of money to send students to DC and we allowed them to live, spend time at your job, network after work, experience the city. Don't exhaust yourself working a night job and a weekend job. And it was a great cause that brought people together, Brent. That's what it is. It's the, yeah. it's, the, it's the common ground that only, I'll be honest, only a university provides sometimes. Right. Especially so instead, of, yeah. instead of being sort of apolitical, we're not going to go there. It's the opposite. Let's, let's go there. Let's bring people together in, in, in on common ground in support of something that yes. 
is not partisan, right? Right. And as long as we we're, we have to be sensitive. So what we came up with was we had we had enough money to fund three students. We had a Democrat, a Republican, and a student who would seek a nonprofit or nonpartisan internship position in D.C. And then guess what I also didn't realize we were doing? Stewardship. Because once we got the alumni team helping us with our council, which I should have involved them even earlier, but thankfully they were terrific. Once I involved our development officer who was attached to ANS, Arts and Sciences, who's still with me as a colleague now. Once I brought in the types of storytelling that we knew our donors were loved, we made the stewardship impact report that year. And we wrote up the stories ourselves, but we didn't know that we had a stewardship team that eventually, of course, mocked it up and made it beautiful. But the weird thing is, again, I knew this was something that was important and nobody had to teach me it was important. Mm -hmm. You should have heard me in chairs meetings, Brent, selling alumni, selling development, selling stewardship to my fellow chairs is a very hard sell. I mean, it, it almost sounds to me, right, what do we do when a new uh, first year class arrives on campus? We do orientation, right? And we, we try to uh, cover, you know, go broad, go deep, get them ready for their new role. Doesn't sound like there's much of an advancement orientation culture in higher ed. So when you're a new faculty member, how do we make sure that all those things that you sort of stumbled upon are just a part of the onboarding of a new faculty member? It's a terrific question. Um, I think that there may have been some challenges in the past that are unique to U of L that have maybe created some cultural barriers that are legitimate challenges, um, but we've moved past them and it's time for a fresh page on this relationship. So I'm here to sell this to people and I'll, I'd love in our remaining time for me to tell you the story of this multi-million dollar philanthropic grant Please. because I think it brings the whole story together. The largest foundation in Kentucky is the James Graham Brown Foundation. And the James Graham Brown Foundation has had wonderful philanthropic experiences with the university in healthcare and in other areas, but they were, they're trying to move focus into social mobility and helping higher education do better for itself. Almost like teaching us to fish, not just giving us a fish. And they've supported, and this is all on their website, they've supported grants to help higher, higher education learn how to do our own jobs and processes better to serve student needs with scarce resources. So when I was a professor, I was a mentor for a scholarship program that they generously fund both at this university and at a sister college in Kentucky called Center College. And the James Graham Brown Foundation sponsors students for four years of any major, assigns them a faculty mentor for the whole four-year period, and there's a lot of interesting programmatic as well as extracurricular support, including travel both in Kentucky and abroad. So I got to know the foundation by being chosen as a mentor. I stuck with my students for four whole years. I'm still in touch with them. And I got to know the people who run the foundation. And then when I came into this role, it was time for me to reconnect with them. I listened a lot about the foundation's shifting priorities. What are the types of things they would want to fund at the University of Louisville? I didn't have the idea, but here's what I did have, Brent. 
I had 20 years of connections to colleagues across the university who I could bring together to brainstorm. They knew what, that I knew what they were doing, that I respected them. I understood their jobs. I wanted them to understand my job now too. We came up with what we thought was a unique and interesting new idea. It turns out it's not, and that's even better. With scarce resources, here's, the, here's what we proposed. With scarce resources, we want pre-STEM age students to succeed, but we can't hire a lot of professors that are very expensive for first year biology, math, and chemistry classes. These are pre-STEM meaning nursing, public health, pre-med, engineering. We have students across the United States, and I will say that even elite schools are suffering from this problem. I've heard this anecdotally, where students are not doing well in their first year pre-STEM age courses. The old days of look to the left and look to the right and half of you won't be here anymore is not the way higher education is. It's not right, it's not our mission, and it's not our economic model. Student success is actually the right thing to do and the budget right thing to do for this university as, many, as well as for many others. So when we identified a problem, we're trying to figure out a solution that the foundation could help us with. Well, we decided again, we can't hire lots of faculty, even graduate students like I was once are very expensive. So we went to a peer learning model of advanced undergraduates whom we could hire, train and deploy at a ratio that will, would allow every first year student in these large pre-STEM age qualifying courses to have a community within the community. And they're called peer leaders, sometimes undergraduate learning assistants. We thought we came up with this and it turned out this is something that people are studying across the United States, especially for STEM age. So, the long story short is, I can send you the press release, we got a three-year pilot grant that will allow us to create this program, track it with data, because we know who is getting the D, the F, and the W, mm -hmm. meaning the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. We isolated the five courses across three disciplines in arts and sciences that we think are the bottlenecks of despair, essentially, where students think they're going to go into these fields and they get discouraged or delayed. That's not good for anyone. The COVID crisis has shown us that we need nurses. We can't get hung up in the first semester with somebody who wants to be a nurse. And what if that person gets derailed? We, again, this is for so many strategic reasons. And this foundation gave us $2.45 million to see if this would work for us. They're not going to fund it forever. What they're going to do is ask us how we're going to deploy our own institutional resources. And we already are. And they asked us, what are you already doing to support student success? And so if that's the new nature of philanthropic giving at that extraordinarily generous level, every university has to be ready. We do have our own resources and our own attention in the game and foundations and philanthropic donors cannot do our work for us. We have to come up with creative ideas and do it together. I love it. The, um... And it, and it sort of uh, harkens back to your TA roots, you know, maybe from TA to PA is what we're talking about here now. And, um, you know, being able to have such clear intervention in a targeted way that it'll work or it won't. You'll have the data, you'll have the outcomes, you'll be able to double down or, uh, or, or you'll have to pivot. Um, but I love that example. Um, and obviously trying to draw direct impact, you know, outcomes via the philanthropic impact is what all donors want. Um, 
we do only have a few minutes left, but I wanted I'm to put it in the, the chat, by the way, for you, please. Okay. Absolutely. I'm, we'll make sure I'm so uh, proud that. of this. Yeah, you should be. And we'll include that in a link to the, to the show notes, um, uh, across our different, uh, distribution platforms here. When you started teaching, it was, it was about a minute before the social media revolution that we've all lived through started. And I am curious also back to our commentary around uh, polarization, empathy, et cetera, um, your experience in, in trying to understand the root cause of student perspectives. Are students today, just given how much more information they have at their disposal, uh, by way of the internet broadly and social platforms specifically, are there, are there views more rigid or more set in stone when they show up as an 18 year old than they might've been as an 18 year old in 2003? Or, or is it the same? I mean, how do you think about the sort of um, the student, I don't know, perspective, willingness to um, come to college to discover and learn and, and, and form their views versus reinforce the views that they've, uh, you know, had pushed on them through this digital environment that we're living in? I think it's a great question. I might have to answer it in a way that will surprise you. I really don't know a lot about what my students' opinions are. I just know that they need to know more about the basics. So I would say that I've struggled my entire teaching career and maybe it is a little bit worse with social media, but that politics is considered a hobby. Like I do yoga, I garden, I volunteer on the weekends. I'm a political junkie or a news junkie. It's not folded into regular civic life. And this is a problem in high school as well. So I have students who are 18 years old who've lived in America their whole lives, and they don't know the most basic constitutional structures and facts. I mean, the most basic. And I don't judge that because this is what the pre-STEMH foundation grant investment is as well. Universities cannot solve every problem that has happened K through 12, right? We have an obligation to start and meet our, to start with where our students are, meeting our student where they are. Because I'll tell you, Brent, you may have experienced this too. Did you ever have a teacher who said, you don't know this and you don't know that? <sighs> Well, no, if it's not, you know, my, my kids did had that experiences when they were in school here in Louisville. Nothing is more discouraging to a student to be told on the first day what they should have been taught by somebody else, but that's out of their control. I never judge my students and I never assume anything. And I tell them, listen, if you already know the basics, great. You're going to learn them in a new way. Nobody's ever complained to me that they were bored by the first few weeks of my class because we're going through constitutional foundations. Nobody, because they know they don't know. And it's comforting that no one knows in the classroom. So I do that every time. And I tell my mm. students, I'm sorry if you, this is coming as a shock to you. It's very complicated, by the way. And it has very little to do with your gut feelings on wedge issues that take no homework at all to have opinions on. We're never going to go there. So for me, I've always approached my teaching that way. The difference is that I think students, just like adults, have a limited attention span for the types of, re of news reading and news consumption that we used to take for granted. And I'll be honest, this involves me as well. I used to get the New York Times seven days a week and would compulsively read it from beginning to end. 
even if I was exhausted at the end of the day, and I would physically go through all the pages. Well, I teach American politics, but the New York Times has international news in the first few pages. I didn't flip to American politics. I read about Chile. I read about Taiwan. I read about France. I learned indirectly because I was absorbing things that I wasn't seeking. And I could name world leaders. I can't right. do that anymore because now I'm doing it totally. on my phone like everybody and it's an else. Algorithm. And it's an algorithm, right. And I'm looking for things that are interesting to me already. Right. And I have to force myself yeah. to open my mind. So that's what I would say is the most important challenge that I understand and, again, can empathize with as well. So maybe the classroom is the modern day flip through the New York Times uh, right. where it's not fed via via uh, an algorithm. Okay, let's bring it full circle. We've got to wrap up here. Fair to say we wouldn't have just had this discussion if it weren't for Booth Fowler, okay? So when you think about Jasmine, uh, when you think about your role, uh, your your role as a, as a professor, who are some of, you, of your Jasmine Farriers out there? You talked about mentorship. Um, you know, what is it like to have that many students that you've interacted with and gotten to know, and I'm sure some you you know you never hear from again. You 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 get disconnected. That's life. But there must be countless examples where you've been able to build that same sort of connection that Booth Fowler has. Give me some shout outs. Who are some of those people that come come to mind? Oh, it's it's actually too long of a list for me to give shout outs. I interact with students all the time, and I've grown to become close to them as colleagues and peers. I actually have people on the advancement team that were my students and in love such it. a different world. I love them all. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but nothing makes me happier when I was a chair. And this is where I'll stop. This is what universities do. It's always the intergenerational ecosystem. When I was chair of political science, I had a wall of fame. And all that was, was a very simple interaction. When I met an alum, I would say, please give me your business card. Doesn't matter what it is. I put it on a wall. I had this giant wall of business cards. I would tell alumni at every event, bring your business cards. And then when I was talking to a student, a prospective student, a high school senior and their parents, I'm talking to the student, but it's the parents I'm really talking to. What do you do with a political science degree from UofL? Step over here and look. I can't tell you what your limits are. This is what you get when you join UofL. You get the UofL family of alums. These are the things, Brent, that I took for granted, that I said every day, and now I work with alumni relations. I can live this value for the entire university and help people like me see the light. And I wish I had seen the light earlier. Amazing thoughts to, to end on. Uh, your passion and enthusiasm for the field of education, for UofL, for advancement is super inspiring. And I'm so glad we were able to meet uh, in this Thank way. You. It's it's really been a pleasure. Um, and if you're listening and you want to stay in touch with Jasmine, uh, look her up. She's easy to find on the UofL uh, website. Mention that you uh, heard her on the podcast. And also, if you're listening and you know of other faculty members who've made the transition into advancement, uh, shoot me a note. And, and maybe this could be a, a new sort of theme that we try to uh, unpack because I, I hope you all, uh, you know, just like I just heard, uh, can can see what an advantage it is to have somebody like Jasmine um, selling that mission in such an authentic way. So with that, Jasmine, I wish you the best as you continue Thank this you. next new exciting chapter in the advancement world. Um, thanks for sharing your story. And to everybody listening, this is Brent signing off from Narragansett, Rhode Island. Take care. <music>